everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. That's right. My wife actually questioned uh, on us saying that's right. And uh, I told her that it was mostly a rib against you. That's why we say it at the end. Because you would always say that's right. Even after the after the introduction, you would always just say that's right. And so then I started saying it to make fun of you. And, uh, and now we just say it. Yeah, it's our thing now. Yeah, that's how it evolves into the canon. I think you have to go back pretty early in the show to find it where I didn't say it, but Zach always did. <laughs> there is an episode where I'm pretty sure you were like, you always say that. Yeah, there was. Yeah. There was. There is an evolution. If you listen to all of our episodes, which I don't recommend, you can track that that subtle, subtle canon change in the, the history of Classic Gaming Brothers. It's one of our things, you know, we do, we say that's right. We also talk about notes from Doug and- uh, our, our producer, we, yeah. Yep. And we we used to have the running gag of referring to titular items as the Jim Rayner of things. That's true. We, we do try to keep our inside jokes- to the minimum so instead we just have gags which aren't really gags but we call them gags in order to make ourselves feel better about them because producer doug is a is a real person and he's terrifying speaking of history and producer doug uh, i have a correction i have to read so in the last episode about dragon quest we talked about western rpgs influencing jrpgs and i said that I had memories of wizardry and described a game that was not wizardry, which I'm 100% sure that I've done before in the past, but I haven't acknowledged it if I've done it incorrectly. Uh, so I wanted to make amends to those who love wizardry and also for those who love majesty, because I was describing a game called Majesty, uh, which was not, in fact, wizardry. Man, I love majesty, though. We should do an episode on majesty. Maybe not after wizardry, but maybe after the episode. After the episode, we could do an episode of majesty. Anyway, this episode's not about majesty. We're going to do this entire episode about wizardry, though, because this is my penance because of my error in memory. So again, I apologize to those of those who love wizardry, but in my defense, both majesty and wizardry both end in Y, so easily confused. Uh, so, Zach. Yes, Seth. What have you been recently playing? Seth, recently I've been playing the game Detention. Uh, it was created by Red Candle Games back in 2017. It's a point-and-click horror adventure game and it's very very good the game is set in 1960s taiwan while the country was under martial law this period in taiwanese history was known as the white terror which was when the kuomintang which was the government at the time was incredibly hostile to those they considered political dissidents and communist sympathizers you start the game as a boy named wei who falls asleep during class he wakes up only to find that the entire classroom is empty and the school has been evacuated due to a incoming typhoon on your way out of the school you have to cut through an auditorium where you encounter a girl named Ray who has fallen asleep on the stage. Wei and Ray make their way to the bridge, which is just off campus, to find that it has collapsed. So they decide they're going to make their way back to a classroom and telephone someone from the nearby town to let them know that they were abandoned at the school and they would like to leave before the typhoon gets there. Um, so they get back to a classroom and Wei leaves to go look for a telephone. Ray then wakes up in the auditorium again and finds Wei's body hanging from the ceiling, dead. You now control Ray, 
and then the game begins. So you control Wei pretty much through the first chunk of the game, which is the prologue, I would call it, to the actual game, which is why I described it. The main game is played from Ray's perspective, who's this young girl, and you realize that things aren't quite what they seem. First of all, the school is a little darker now, it appears abandoned, and there are also gravestones littering the schoolyard where there weren't before. You also encounter creatures called the Lingered, which are actually based on hungry ghosts, which is a type of ghost from uh, Asia lore um and in order to get past the lingered you can't fight them you have to hold your breath because the lingered are attracted to the breath of the living so you have to press a button and your character will cover their mouth and there is a timer on how long you can hold your breath as you're walking past these creatures and trust me i found out how short that timer is pretty quickly but yeah it's about exploring the school figuring out what's going on figuring out what happened to way and why he was killed and it really mixes together both elements of taiwanese mythology with with the real world horror that occurred during this period and it's very heavily inspired by the terrors that the people of the time uh, were inflicted by when it came to this hostile rule over the uh, from the government one of the opening scenes is the teacher in Wei's class teaching a subject and then a security guard entering and saying you have to come with me and then the teacher leaving and you never see her again you find notes scattered around where you find that the teacher was leading a book club where they would talk about books that were banned you know it really covers the the horror that was going on and it mixes it with the horror of the supernatural overall it's a very spooky game and i love the aesthetic everything is like hand-drawn style um so all the like characters look like they're hand-drawn they're in monochrome while the world around you is kind of a hand-drawn aesthetic and it is just both creepy and uh horrifying and that's kind of red candle games' shtick i talked about their game devotion before devotion is kind of a similar idea it was based on this period in Taiwan where a lot of cults were springing up and it follows a person who essentially lost their family to their involvement in a cult and is also a horror game and that is also worth checking out. Detention you can find on Steam. Devotion you have to buy through the Red Candle Games website due to a stupid reason but you can get it from them um, and it's a great game I recommend both. Detention was also adapted into a film in 2019 and a Netflix series in 2020. I've watched a bit of the Netflix series. It's its own original plot but it's like based in the story of the game where the movie is like a direct adaptation i do like the uh the reviews one says uh this game is a masterpiece that's why china blocked it and uh another review which may be a review that our listeners might want to pay attention to is that the game is the most disturbing video game experience they've ever been through it's psychologically torturing depressing and shattering so if you play this game based on zach's recommendation and you feel really sad afterwards don't blame me it blame zach uh, yeah i mean it is it is a very depressing game but it's a game that doesn't shy away from true world horror you know i think that i think there needs to be more games that explore topics like this through this medium and i think this is a kind of a perfect example of going through history through a medium that's different than like watching a documentary or reading a book well if you want some laughs after playing zach's scary game that's depressing you can play my game which is also a horror game but also a comedy and that game is killer frequency it was released back in june 1st of this year 2023 and so it's been out at the time of 
of this recording, 27 days. And it is a first-person horror puzzle game set in 1987. You are put in the role of Forrest Nash, late-night radio talk show host. However, Forrest Nash used to be the late-night radio talk show host for Chicago and now is of this small backwater town, and he is very sad. Probably because after the radio, the first time they go live, he says, what's your audience? And the producer of that radio show says, about 35. And he goes, oh, 35,000? That's pretty small. And she goes, no, 35. And she goes, how many people did you have? And he said, oh, about five. And she's like, 5,000? That's a lot. We would hope to even receive 5,000. And he said, no, 5 million. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) So he's sad that he has to go DJ uh, a late night studio. Uh, He's doing it as a favor for somebody. And the twist is, which is not really a twist because the entire game is premised on this, is that there's a serial killer in the town. And at some point in time, at the very beginning of the game, you have to become the DJ and the 911 operator because as a small town of a thousand people, they only have one person that works the 911 operator dispatch and there's only two police officers. Well, three police officers, but one of them's on vacation and you can find out about the other ones in the game. You have to solve the puzzles of helping people survive a serial killer while helping them navigate possibly like an office complex or help them start a car all by talking them through different steps and finding items to be helpful and being able to accomplish those steps this game is like a mashup of firewatch and not for broadcast so if you liked firewatch and the the dialogue and the voice acting of firewatch this game has that it's got great voice acting you really feel for these people sometimes it's a little unnerving because there's sometimes a serial killer just breathing into the phone call but uh it's definitely uh, more on the comedy side than, and I don't think there's any jump scares or anything in it but if they are they're they're minor and you have the complexity of manning a DJ booth so you need to play the music you know you need to talk the song in as it were and you have to play advertisements you can in fact just play advertisements when people are talking to you on 911 calls it's kind of rude but you can do it you can also use your DJ sound selector so you can play fun sounds like uh, banana peel slips while you're talking to the serial killer anyway it's like so far a great game I I've been really digging it. I recommend if you want to play a horror game, but not as depressing as Zach's, check out Killer Frequency on Steam. Uh, I think it's $30. As of the release of this episode, though, I think the summer sale might be going on. Yes, and its regular MSRP is $24.99. So you can check it out there. But as Zach mentioned, it may also be on sale, maybe 10% off because the game is brand new. So Oh, yeah. But anyway, Zach. Yes, Seth. What's our episode about? Oh, right. Wizardry. Yes, our episode's about wizardry and let's start by getting into the history of wizardry wizardry begins where many projects from this era the 1970s begin with a college student andrew greenberg a cornell university student got the idea for wizardry sometime around 1978 andrew developed the game in applesoft basic a basic interpreter for the apple II, but would eventually rewrite it in pascal with the help of robert woodhead the change from basic to pascal was done primarily due to the fact that basic programs are by nature incredibly slow so they had to write in something like pascal to increase the speed inspiration for the game came from programs that were available on the plato system plato standing for 
programmed logic for automatic teaching operations. Play-Doh was one of the earliest computer-assisted instruction systems that ran on mainframe computers. It was also unique in that it offered a variety of graphical components, since it was primarily developed for university use. So it would show things like virtual beakers that you could like put in formulas for chemical reactions and stuff. Because there were graphics available for Plato, there were also games that were developed for Plato, and some of these games would use rudimentary graphics. Per one source, one of Andrew's jobs in college was minding the university's computer lab and making sure that gamers weren't up all night using all of the terminals for CRPGs instead of doing actual schoolwork. Because of this, he was exposed to the world of Plato games. One of these was 1978's Oubliette, developed by Jim Schwager at the University of Illinois. Oubliette was a fantasy multiplayer RPG where players could explore a castle and dungeon in the world of Tikal. Oubliette was also unique in that it was multiplayer first, meaning it required more than one person to play. This often meant that computer labs in the 1970s would see fans of the game gathered around on all the different terminals trying to get through the game and defeat the various enemies. Oubliette was also a game that had no ending, so you can imagine how late those players were staying in there, gaming all night basically. The first wizardry, first known as Wizardry Dungeons of Despair, took about two years to develop. One of the reasons for this delay was that there just wasn't a runtime system that was available and the current runtime system for the Apple wasn't fast enough to run the game. Runtime system, for those of you who don't know, including me, uh, was a way that would allow home Apple II users to run Pascal programs without the need of a specialized card. They knew a faster runtime system was coming, but this meant waiting. This wasn't a problem, however, as the time was spent playtesting and balancing the game. Development on Wizardry was primarily focused on designing the game as a system, similarly how Dungeons & Dragons isn't just one game, but rather a system used for games. So they were building the framework in order to be able to sell multiple things within that framework. Andrew and Robert imagined the Wizardry system would be what they could use for various scenarios, the first one being the one that they called Dungeons of Despair. In 19 in 1980, a prototype of the game was available to be demoed and they showed it to the public at the New York Personal Computer Expo. People were impressed by the game and some even tried to buy copies. However, the prototype was not ready for sales yet, as Apple had not yet released the updated runtime system that was delaying the game. However, 1981, the wait was over when Apple officially released the updated runtime system. This updated system would allow for an unmodified 480k Apple II to run games games and programs compiled in Apple Pascal. In late 1979, Robert Woodhead, Robert Ciratek, and Norman Ciratek had founded the company Ciratek Software, which would eventually become Ciratek Software. They were located in a room of the Ciratek father's factory, which made spoons. Our father did not have a factory made spoons, but he did work in a factory and made ball bearings. Ciratek's first venture was a database management program and a game called Galactic Attack. They would also also become the publishers for the beta version of Wizardry Dungeon of Despair. To get people excited for the game, it was demoed again at the June 1981 Apple Fest in Boston. They even sold some copies of the game there, but they also brought the eyes of Gary Gygax and TSR on them. Gygax and his team were concerned that Dungeons of Despair was a bit too similar to Dungeons and Dragons. So to ease their concern, the name of the game was changed to Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord, which certainly can't be confused for Dungeons 
Dragons. The rest of 1981 was spent finishing the game, including developing the packaging. Robert and Norman Zerotech's father, Frederick Zerotech, the man who made spoons, suggested that they use professional packaging for the game to distinguish it from other small production games released at the time, which were sold in plastic baggies. Now, what they ended up with was a, a black box with the name of the game and a fantasy font, complete with a sword cutting through the letters. Below the name of the game is a green dragon, and below that is the subtitle Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord. It's a very nice looking box. In the box, there was also a full manual that provided illustrations, and these illustrations were done by Will McLean, who was a cartoonist for Dragon Magazine. What's kind of funny, because I think Will McLean also did cartoon stuff for Dungeons & Dragons, so like, Gary Gygax was mad that they had a game that was similar to Dungeons & Dragons, so they changed the name, but then they got the guy that did the illustrations anyway. Yeah, at that time, that world was pretty small. Yeah. And the game was officially released in September of 1981. Now, the plot is focused on an evil wizard, Wardna, which is Andrew backwards. Since Andrew Greenberg was the creator of the game, that makes a little sense. Now, Wardna stole the power amulet from Trebor, the who, which is Robert, uh, the Mad Overlord. Using the amulet, Wardna created a 10-level maze beneath the castle of Trebor. Five years later, you play as a group of heroes who are sent down to kill Wardna and return the amulet to Trebor. The game plays similar to other CRPGs at the time. A majority of the game is represented via text, with the starting town being only text-based menus. After creating a party from your a choice of five possible races, human, dwarves, gnomes, hobbits, and elves, a choice of four classes, fighter, priest, thief, mage and a choice of alignment good evil neutral you are tasked with going down to the maze beneath the castle trebor and stopping the evil wizard interestingly enough D&D always refers to its hobbits as halflings so it's kind of funny that they call their halflings hobbits which is from J.R.R. Tolkien but as the people in D&D world and the J.R.R. Tolkien world found out you can't trademark nor intellectually property uh, fantasy races <laughs> unless they're very very specific now once you enter the maze uh, the game takes place on a new display that being of a dungeon crawl dungeon crawls are a subgenre of rpg games where the game is primarily based in going from room to room through a dungeon cavern or other maze type setting think eye of the beholder grimrock many of the dungeon dragons gold box games and the games that came out after the gold box games uh, were dungeon crawler games uh, we talked about stone prophet that was a dungeon crawler game there's just piles of them they're a lot of fun i like them a lot of the old older ones um you have to actually draw the maze usually with your pen and pencil to get to know where you're going and use notes to write stuff down now specifically with wizardry most of your screen will be occupied by text with a small portion dedicated to the first person view kind of like a window in a car right racing game like a car driving yeah. game the like hud of all the menus and stuff takes up a majority of the screen and then you have a tiny little windshield that you see out of for the, the dungeon maze. And in the original wizardry, the maze was using a very few lines of graphics. And if an enemy was encountered, artwork of the enemy would appear and a description of the enemy and their actions would take place. You can encounter groups of one to four monsters. As Seth was alluding to, in wizardry, the game had no auto map. So players were advised to hand draw the map as they explored to avoid getting lost. Now, this was actually necessary to 
to play wizardry, as sometimes you would encounter teleport squares that would send you to a new part of the map entirely, so you could theoretically get lost forever in wizardry. Uh, magic can be used to describe current locations, but of course magic costs magic points, so you have to make sure to use that wisely. When you gain additional levels, you can also learn the ability to teleport, which will allow the player to move to a new location on the map using specific coordinates. However, you must make sure you know these coordinates exactly because you can teleport yourself into a wall and cause yourself to die instantly. Nice. That's the way it should be. The game also cannot be saved within the dungeon. You must leave the dungeon before you can save, requiring you to backtrack out of the maze in order to get outside of the dungeon. If the party is killed, you must start a new party, but you can recover lost items from the bodies of the first party that were killed. That's great. I love that. That's like, yeah. <laughs> like the you find the dead bodies of the people you were previously playing as and you collect their items. The game also required players to save their progress onto a second floppy disk called a scenario disk. This wasn't abnormal for CRPGs and other games at the time. Ultima required you to have a save disk. Uh, it was mostly because the data that you were saving on there would take up too much space and there wouldn't be enough space for the game on your main disc. Players, though, would be required to keep their scenario disc after beating Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord, as you needed it. You needed it to play Wizardry 2 and Wizardry 3 in order to import the characters, which was required. You couldn't build new characters for Wizardry 2 and 3. You had to import your character from Wizardry 1. Wizardry was a commercial success. The game shipped in September of 1981 and was immediately considered one of the most popular games for the Apple II. In June, of 1982, it had sold 24,000 copies, making it one of the best-selling computer RPGs of the era. By comparison, Ultima had sold 20,000 copies at the time. And by comparison, Ultima, which came out in the same year, had sold 20,000 copies at the time. So it was beating out Ultima by 4,000 copies. In 1984, the game surpassed 200,000 copies, outselling Ultima. By 1989, it was reported to have sold over a half a million copies, which is great, especially for a RPG because it's very pretty and even when it was really popular it was still pretty niche and now the uh the game was popular with critics the space gamer saying that it represented a leap in computer game design and the Dragon Magazine, uh, which they had the cartoonist from, said that there is so much good about this game, it's difficult where to begin. After a few months, commercially sold game trainers began to hit the market, but Sir Tech would not approve of their release. The game also had one of the earliest strategy guides called the Wizzy System to help the average gamer beat the game. The game was also reportedly used in child psychology in therapy. Now, in terms of the legacy, beyond being released for the Apple II, the game was soon ported to the Commodore 64, the Commodore 128, the FM7, the Game Boy Color, the Macintosh, the MSX, NEC PC 9801, NES, IBM PC, the Sharp XI, the Super Famicom, and the TurboGrafx-16. The game also spawned a franchise. The first two sequels, Wizardry 2, The Knight of Diamonds, and Wizardry 3, The Legacy of Lagaman, were released in 1982 and 1983, respectively. And as mentioned before, they required the scenario disc of the player's game from the first Wizardry to play. Wizardry 4, The Return of Wordna, was released in 1987, and in the game you play 
as Wordna himself, which is pretty fun. You get to play Ooh. as a bad guy. Wizardry 5, The Heart of Maelstrom, came out in 1988. Wizardry 6, Bane of the Cosmic Forge, released in 1990. Wizardry 7, Crusaders of the Dark Savant, released in 1992. And lastly, Wizardry 8, released in 2001. And Wizardry 8 doesn't have a fun subtitle, which bums me out. A 1996 spinoff called Nemesis, The Wizardry Adventure, was released for DOS, imported to the Sega Saturn and Windows in Japan only. And a 2001 spinoff by Japanese developer Rekjin was released in 2001 called Wizardry Tale of the Forsaken Land. In 2003, Surtech officially dissolved, but in 2009, brand revitalization occurred. Following this, there were a few games that were released all by Japanese developers, and some are Japanese exclusive games. There's Wizardry Online, which was an MMO that was shut down in 2016. That was not a Japanese exclusive, we got that. Wizardry Labyrinth of Lost Souls, which was originally released in 2009 for the PlayStation 3, later ported to iOS, PlayStation Vita, and was recently ported to the PC and Steam in 2020. Wizardry Simai no Kusabi was released exclusively in Japan for the Nintendo DS. Wizardry Bokyaku no Aisen was also released for the Nintendo Nintendo DS. Wizardry Online Mobile was a phone MMO that shut down in 2011. Wizardry Torwashi Boro no Machi was released for the PS3. Tokyo Maiku Wizardry Zero, which was a social networking card battle RPG using the Japanese exclusive mobile game service Mobage, was released. Wizardry Senren no Mato, a social networking RPG for smartphones, shut down in 2015. Wizardry Schema, an idle game RPG for smartphones, shut down in 2017. And finally, WizRogue, Labyrinth of Wizardry, an isometric roguelike RPG with gotcha game elements, which was shut down in 2015 and relaunched in 2017 with the gotcha elements removed. Wizardry was very popular in Japan. <laughs> 21 times Zach said Wizardry after we got to the legacy portion of this episode. So I'm surprised he didn't stick that with me in order to be able to pay back my penance to the wizardry game they like to name things called wizardry they really do but i'm just like just the fact that there are so many wizardry japanese exclusive games is very interesting to me since it was a western rpg yeah since it was a western rpg so you know like we talked about in dragon quest western rpgs were popular in japan or and are popular in japan possibly even more popular than they are in the western market yeah uh and yeah as we mentioned before wizardry was highly influential to games like dragon quest and also to final fantasy um and a lot of jrpgs were influenced by games like wizardry and to this day i would say jrpgs and just rpgs are influenced by games like wizardry i mean seth earlier mentioned grimrock which was uh kind of the return to form for dungeon crawlers and i think that the whole dungeon crawler genre has a lot to owe to wizardry because while that wasn't the first dungeon crawler i don't think think it was definitely one of the ones that like definitely led the way for future dungeon crawlers all right that's our wizardry episode we're getting now into our retro rewind so seth had me play shack Fu. Originally released in 1994 for the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo, the game follows former professional basketball player Shaquille O'Neal. In the game, you play a Shaq who walks into a dojo, gets teleported to an alternate dimension where he must rescue a boy named Nezu from an evil mummy. It's a bad game. The combat is an absolute mess. The enemies are really fast, which you think would be good for a fighter, which it is. It's a, you know, a kind of like a Street Fighter style game. But for some reason, Shaq's moves are all very slow. So the enemy is like bombarding you with things and you barely get a chance to move it's a mess uh it's just not fun 
I like I sometimes enjoy playing a bad game. Shaq Fu is just not a good time. I didn't have fun playing it. But you own it. I do own it. It's like one of the worst games ever made. So I own a copy. I also have a copy of Superman 64. Don't love that game either. But yeah, I do own it. I didn't get very far. Uh, I actually suck at fighting games in general. I do a lot of button mashing, but Shaq Fu is a certain kind of game that I just, I did not get very far in it. Anyway, next week, Seth, you can play Michael Jordan, Chaos in the Windy City for the Super Nintendo. I feel like there should be a crossover with Shaq Fu and Michael Jordan. I just love that there there are multiple games featuring like famous basketball players that are not basketball games. From the 90s. From the 90s. Now, Zach had me play Harley's Humongous Adventure, which was released in 19. 1993 for the North American market, 1994 for the Japanese market, both for the, well, one for the SNES, one for the Super Famicom. Oddly released in February of 1993 for the American market, which is not really a time to release a game back in the day, but they did. In the game, you play as Harley, who for some reason, I didn't watch the intro, is shrunk down and is on a mission to get back to his regular size, which I imagine everyone is on a mission when you are shrunk down, except for maybe Ant-Man. In the game, you have a, you have to platform around looking for the parts that make up the device to make you larger and finding those parts ends the stage. Uh, there is uh, a time on each of the stages that counts down and there's bad guys. And the bad guys are like flies and stuff like that. And you're equipped with an either a nail gun that throws very large nails comparatively to Harley or Harley hucks nails with some accuracy and speed. Either way, you throw nails at things. Uh, you also have a jetpack, which is really cool because I just, I started getting into it. And it was really just pretty seamless. I was like jumping, jumping, and then I was like jetpacked away. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I, I actually had a lot of fun playing it. It was a, a pretty tight platformer. If you're looking for a fun side-scrolling adventure, check out Harley's Humongous Adventure. It's fun. It's very nostalgic and really is it does platforming right, in my opinion, and is just a good game. And while you're on it, if you're playing that game, you can always throw on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and really have a miniature time. Zach, uh, you can play the Lawnmower Man for the Game Boy. I don't know why, but you can. Okay, I will. That's going to be our episode. We're talking about wizardry. If you want to uh, email us about different topics or just generally talk to us, you can email us at classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com. You can always listen to us wherever podcast apps are served. And you can also follow us on the social medias, uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. We're at Classic Gaming Brothers. And Twitter, we are CG Brothers Pod. So yeah, is there anything else that I missed, Zach? Don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Zach. I've been Seth. And we We've been the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's...